Hello, fellow foodies, and welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, and you're listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. Today on the show, we're going to dive into a topic that is near and dear to my health, and that is women's health. Um, we're going to talk with Ella Vardaman. She's a former trainee from my research group, but now she's doing her PhD um, at the City University of New York and the New York Botanical Garden Plant Sciences Program under the mentorship of Dr. Ina Vanderbroek and Dr. Edward Canelli. Her research focuses on the ethnopharmacology of plants used by Haitian immigrants in New York City for women's health. Ella currently serves as the student representative of the Society for Economic Botany, and she is a recipient of the Ruth Kirstein Predoctoral Individual National Research Service Award from the National Institutes of Health, um, Office of Dietary Supplements, and the National Center of Complementary and Integrative Health. In 2020, Ella received the Garden Club of Americas and Chatham Fellowship for Medicinal Plant Research. She received her degree in plant biology with a minor in anthropology from the University of Georgia and um, is now, like I said, pursuing her PhD. So welcome so much to the show, Ella. It's great to see you. Oh, thank you, Dr. Glave. It's great to see you too. Thank you for yeah. having me. No, absolutely. So I thought it'd be fun on this episode to, you know, give a bit of a, of a student's perspective of what it's like to be doing a PhD in, in a field of ethnobotany, especially a field where you have an intersection with health and, and different kind of cultural um, cultural approaches to understanding health through different lenses. So why don't we start there? What can you tell us about how you began in this path of ethnobotanical research? Well, I really came from more of an ethno or more of a botany background because I mean, I feel like I have a very traditional botanist or origin story where I just grew up loving like I love being outside. My parents took me hiking all the time. I was always in my grandparents backyard. So I came from like a I love nature. I love plants kind of background. And it wasn't really until I started actually taking some botany classes in high school that I was like, oh, I really am interested in ethnobotany. Um, and I didn't really think it was something that you could do for a career. And it wasn't really until college where I think I've told you the story. It's a little embarrassing, <laughs> but my parents sent me, like they clipped out your newspaper article um, from the New York times and they mailed it to me to my college dorm room. And they're like, do you want to be like this person? And I said, yes, actually that, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what I want to do. So, you know, I think it's, it's kind of exposure. Like, I feel like you don't realize that this is a whole career path until you see somebody else who's done it. And you're like, oh, maybe I could do that too. But um, I think as a student, it's interesting. A lot of times I feel like a jack of all trades, master of none, because mm -hmm. I'm doing a little bit of everything. I'm doing like some anthropology, but I'm not an anthropologist. <laughs> I'm doing some microbiology, but I'm not a microbiologist. <laughs> and then I'm doing some chemistry, also not a chemist. But I think it's fun. You know, I get to work with lots of different people and I never get bored. And I, I love learning. So it's nice to learn about lots of different types of things. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, I mean, I think it's, I think this is really a, a fun thing about science where you can bring in different disciplines into your approach to different scientific questions, which is what ethnobotany and ethnobotanists do, I think, exceptionally well. So that's great. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your dissertation research that I know you're in the midst of, of, of still heavily in your research process. Um, what's, what's the focus of your project and, and kind of share with us what the, that process of even getting started with, with the a project is like. Okay, so my research focuses on the ethnopharmacology of medicinal plants for Caribbean women's health 
in New York City. Um, so it's kind of a combination. So I have an ethnobotany component where I collaborate with the Haitian community in New York and I interview Haitian women about medicinal plants they use for women's health. And then I have a laboratory component where I'm focused on medicinal plants that are used to treat gynecological infections and kind of the chemistry and bioactivity. So the way these plants are sold and prepared in the, in the city impacts their chemistry. And then I'm interested in how these differences in chemistry impact how they relate to the vaginal microbiota when they're used to treat gynecological infections. And so when I came into the program, you know, I didn't know exactly, I knew I wanted to do ethnobotany. I knew I wanted to do some chemistry. And so I really relied on the foundations that my mentors, um, Dr. Vanderbrook and Dr. Kennelly had. So Dr. Kennelly had background doing stuff with women's health with his work with Black Cohosh. And then um, Dr. Vanderbrook had experience or like 20 years <laughs> building this foundation of urban ethnobotany in New York City. So it was kind of a looking at what my interests were and then intersecting at what they had already, um, what they had been doing in the past. That's great. So New York City is really a, this, this fascinating melting pot of many different mm -hmm. cultures. And, um, you know, while of course we have Western medicine available in New York City through traditional allopathic clinics, you also have these other um, types of herb shops and bodegas. Yeah. What can you tell us about that environment and how that's tied to Caribbean culture, especially for Caribbean, Caribbean immigrants in New York City? Well, it's so, it's so cool. And my mentor, Dr. which you've had Dr. Vanderbrook on your podcast, but um, she shows this really great picture in a lot of her presentations where it's a botanica, which is like these, these Caribbean, I, they're not just herb shops, they're spiritual centers, they're everything. They're such a big part of the community. And it's like right next door to a urgent care clinic. And <laughs> it's really like, you know, there's, there's two parallel systems going on all the time. And it's so crazy because I think people just don't think that you watch well, I know that people don't think that you people use plants in the city but there's a huge network of ways to get plants from the Caribbean up here mm -hmm. um, when I worked with the Haitian community they were very specific they're like I only use plants directly from Haiti um, they're brought by friends and family and are sold in the stores up here so there's a whole a whole network <laughs> that's amazing so take us through one of these shops. Like, let's say that we're opening the door. What we, what might we expect to see as we walk in and look around in the different aisles and shelves? Well, I kind of put botanicas into two different categories, at least from me going out and trying to buy the plants that I work with in lab and botanicas. So there's definitely just, I call them the candles and oils botanica. You're not going to see so many plants in that those kind of botanicas. But the botanicas that sell plants, you're looking at freezers full of full of plant material um, you know you still have candles and oils but then you know there might be a basement area where they have like file cabinets of dry plants um that's really common at least with the Haitian botanicas I've the file cabinets of plants which is and they're all in plastic bags um sometimes dry sometimes fresh that's cool and so um how do you go about starting or, or interviewing people about their plant uses? Do you work with the botanicas or is there kind of a social network within the community that you connect with? And, and how do you, how do you get started with these interviews? Yeah. I actually had a really hard time getting started with my interviews because I mean, I think you mean, I know you know this, but you feel like the world's most annoying person, you know, cause you're <laughs> like, I was walking around Flatbush, Brooklyn, which is little Haiti talking to random people on the street, talking to people, business owners, talking to community organizations. And you, I mean, you feel annoying. If I came up to myself on the street, I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk <laughs> <to them. laughs> but you have to kind of, you know, 
pretend you're not annoying. And I really, I mean, I just had a really hard time making connections in the community. And I first, like, I also, while I was out doing all that footwork, I was trying to get in touch with lots of different organizations and academics and people I thought that could help me. And they all told me I was crazy. They were like, people are not using plants in New York. What are you doing? You should, you need to change your thesis. I had somebody ask me how far along I was and they were like, oh, I don't know if you're going to finish. Um, oh no. <laughs> but I mean, it really just took, I mean, it really just took the right, meeting the right person. Like my first interview, I had been walking around all day. It was really hot. I was feeling really discouraged. And I walked into this community center, Haitian Americans United for Progress, which is a really, really great organization in New York. They do so much for the Haitian community. And I came in and I talked to the person at the front desk and I got kind of the same response I normally get like, oh, well, there's no one here today, but if you come back, you can give me your email or your phone number. And I turned around and somebody was standing behind me and they were, they said, I want to do it. You can interview me. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. And then after I interviewed her, everybody else was like, oh, well, that was easy. <laughs> and that first, the first person I interviewed, she ended up helping me. She was my translator for a lot of my interviews. So oh, that's amazing. Together, yeah. So here's the big question. Are people using plants as medicine among the Haitian um, immigrant population in New York City? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Yeah. I interviewed a hundred people. Wow. Um, hundred Haitian women and 97 people. So 97 out of hundred, 97% said I was using plants when I was living in Haiti. And then that number dropped a little bit when I asked like, okay, are you using plants here? It was like 83%, but it was more oh, like very a, high. 83%. Yeah, it's still really high, but it was also, it was more like, oh, I just got here a few months ago. I just don't know where to get plants yet. Mm. So that was, it was incredible how, how much people are using plants, at least, I mean, I know for women's health, I know it's, it's even broader than that. And so there's a lot to explore there, but, um, no, it was really, I had a, I had these like screener questions, you know, before I would ask people before I do my survey where I confirm if they're 18 years old or older, you know, and I stopped asking people if they knew about medicinal plants, because it just wasn't necessary. I could like anybody, I did a lot of my interviews at that community center, anybody who walked in, I could say, Hey, can I interview you? And they, they would know. That's great. So what are some, what are some good examples of like common medicinal plants that a lot of people that you interviewed use? Like what are, what are some of the more common ones? Definitely a lot of foods, which is what um, mm -hmm. Dr. Vanderbrook has seen, which I feel like is very appropriate for this podcast, but, yes. <laughs> but that's definitely what my mentor has seen with her work with the Dominican community, the Jamaican community, um, Puerto Rican community, like it, people are using foods as medicines for women's health. So people were using cloves and um, like pigeon pea, which is common in the Caribbean to eat, mm -hmm. um, as well as, you know, coconut and avocado. But I think like one of the biggest things was there was, especially with diseases like cancer or just like, uh, or more just like like being preventative, I guess, preventative health, take things that you would take every day. People were really big about like, oh, you just need to eat a lot of greens. Oh, you just need to eat right. And that was a lot of the answers I got in my interviews was just like, oh, you know, wow. if you eat right and you take care of yourself, you're going to be healthy. <laughs> That's great. So with these, with these food plants, I mean, but this is different than a typical food use, right? So let's take, for example, yeah. cloves, like they're not just using cloves as a regular seasoning or how, how are they using it as a medicine? So 
It's, it's a, I mean, it's a combination. So, I mean, people, I mean, definitely cloves are big in Haitian cuisine, but then people were used, soaking it in water and using it to treat vaginal infections. People were just bathing themselves in cloves, um, mm -hmm. you know, steaming, um, steaming for like afterbirth. Um, that was another use for cloves. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's something that, you know, like it's something that you eat, but it's also what I found with a lot of Haitian plants is something that you use for like your entire body. Wow. Nice. So when I, when I think about like medicinal plants for women's health, I'm thinking of a few different areas, at least I've, I've heard about in my own interviews. Again, my stuff's been more focused on infectious and inflammatory skin disease, but, um, you know, I, I've heard of plants used to regulate fertility plants to take after childbirth, to bring on the milk as a galactagogue or plants to help postpartum recovery after childbirth or plants for painful menstruation plants for menopause, plants for like vaginal infections. Mm -hmm. are, are these kind of around the same types of things that you were finding as well? Or are there, are there other categories that I'm missing here? Oh no, it's like you read my questionnaire list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where I, what I did was I had a list of women's health conditions and then I read, I read them off and people would, you know, say if they knew any remedies for each one. And it's like you, it's like you read my question. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's great. That's great. So um, what have been some of the most, I guess, memorable stories during this work that you've been doing um, or kind of things that, that stuck out to you as interesting? I can think of a couple. I mean, that first, that first interview was one, but I did, there was one, it was a Saturday and I had to, I set up doing these interviews at a church. There was like a church event going on and I got there really early and started talking to some of the women who were setting up the church event. And these were like really long interviews. <laughs> like I had um, one woman, we talked for like two and a half hours. Like it wow. was like, it was long. So there was a point where they were kind of like, we need to speed this up a little bit because we had this church <laughs> event going on. Like, can you start doing two at a time? And I was like, yeah, I guess I can do two at a time. That's fine. And it got kind of out of hand because I was sitting there, you know, interviewing like maybe a couple of women and then all these other women started gathering around. So I had like 15 or 20 people <laughs> and they started arguing with each other <laughs> about what, like, you know, I'd ask whoever I was interviewing, like, okay, what do you use, um, you know, after you give birth? And like, she would tell me one thing and then somebody else would be like, why are you, why are you using that? You should use this instead. <laughs> okay. I'll interview you next, but I need to listen to what she's saying. And it, it was, it was really fun. It felt, honestly, it felt like I was at a baby shower, maybe a little bit where you have all this, like, yeah, yeah, but it was fun. Um, and then it's I like, a, like a focus group, although focus groups are never quite focused because you have <laughs> very lots of people debating, but I think it's great because you're getting consensus and discussion around the different remedies and new things can come out from that. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it was also just fun. Like it, I just really enjoy talk. I mean, I think it's a requirement for this job. I enjoy talking to people. So it was just yeah. really fun. Um, Yeah. <laughs> So, okay, so as an as as someone also doing kind of ethnopharmacology of trying to understand how these herbs work from a basis of science, mm -hmm. how do how do you even go about that process? Because you're interviewing people, you're documenting, okay, they're using cloves as a bath, or they're using other remedies to treat infections or to treat mastitis or to bring in the milk. Like, what are the types of assays in a laboratory setting that you can do to look at potential? mechanisms of action or potential efficacies of these different remedies? So some of the assays that I've done for my PhD, so I've done very traditional minimal and hippocopatory concentration assays where I just, 
you know, have a serial dilution of these plant extracts, um, either in methanol or how they're traditionally prepared in water. And then I test against, I'm looking at beneficial bacteria that make up the vaginal microbiota. So bacteria that you would hope that the extracts are not interfering with because mm -hmm. it could lead to increased um, likelihood of disease. And then I'm also testing against a pathogenic bacteria, Garnella vaginalis, which causes um, bacterial vaginosis. Mm -hmm. So testing those in MIC assays, also um, minimum um, bacterial cytokine concentration assays, seeing if the extract actually kills the um, actually kills the uh, the bacteria. And then I've done some biofilm assays to see how uh, my these plants or the, some of the compounds in these plants are in, interacting with um, Garnella biofilm. And then I've also done some co-culture assays recently. That's like what I've been working on for the past eight months. Okay. Um, yeah, where I'm growing the good bacteria with the bad bacteria and introducing my plant extract and seeing how it impacts the ratio of the two. <laughs> Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, that's, that's what you're dealing with is this mixture of organisms in the environment mm -hmm. to see what happens. That's great. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then um, I know that you've also been working on one particular plant. It's, um, and you may need to correct me in how I'm pronouncing it, but it's Argamini, um, Argamini Mexicana. Everybody, right? everybody says it different. And apparently I've been saying it wrong for like, okay. <laughs> I was recently told Argemone, but also I've heard Argemone. argument. Yeah. So I, yeah. I've been trying to recorrect. Correct it's myself. like tomato, tomato, Argemone, Argemone. <laughs> well, you know, if you, I had a mentor in undergrad, she said, you know, it's Latin. So if you just say it constantly <laughs> enough, it's fine. That's great. Yeah. So tell me about this plant. What does it look like and what is it used for traditionally? So it's in the poppy family. Its common name is prickly poppy and it really deserves that name. I was cutting some up yesterday and I completely ripped up my arms. Oh, no. <laughs> really, really prickly. Um, has a really pretty little yellow flower and it's used by the Dominican community for vaginal infections. So I, not the Haitian community is what I've learned. Cause I, oh, interesting. yeah. So kind of a background story. So I started my PhD like August, 2019. And then the pandemic happened. So I couldn't do my interviews for a really long time. And I, you know, I had to figure out how to wait, like how to keep making progress on my PhD while this pandemic was going on. So I used my mentor's data with the Dominican community. And then also what was known about plants in the Haitian literature to hypothesize plants that I could look at in the lab while I was waiting to do my survey. So I had like a list of 10 plants that I you know, was going to look at in the lab and see if they had any bioactivity that we thought were going to be used in the Haitian community. So I ended up focusing in on Argemone um, because it did have some activity in the lab. But then when I actually went out and did my survey, um, the Haitians do not use it <laughs> at all. <laughs> I actually asked some people specifically, like, do you use this plant? I showed them a picture and they're like, no, it's too prickly. Why would we do that? Um, <laughs> That's great. Yeah. But, I think it shows the, I mean, it shows the importance of doing field work though, because we had these hypotheses, you know, from the literature and yeah. from our previous data. And when I get out and talk to people, they're like, are you crazy? I've never used that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that also shows like, even when people have access to the same types of plants in a certain mm -hmm. environment, it, you know, culture really does dictate. Oh, absolutely. You know, what species are used and how they're used and how important they are um, to that culture yeah. and community. That's exciting. Very cool. Um, well, I guess, you know, where is this work 
taking you next. So you're in the process, have, you've completed these 100 interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in the process of doing these lab studies. Like, what do you hope to learn? And like, how, how will you return this information to the public at large and, and maybe also the, the, the Haitian community? I think that's, I mean, that's a big part of my next step. So one of the things I'm going to be doing as part of my thesis is I'm going to be creating this monograph of probably like 20 to 25 of the top reported plants for women's health and have information that was get, you know provided by the survey. So like how people are using it, but then also I'm going to be doing a literature review on each of these plants and providing like any known interactions, toxicity, any scientific study, like summarizing scientific studies. And then I really want to get that back to the Haitian community. So I think we've talked, I've talked a lot with my, my friends at Haitian Americans United for Progress. We're trying to figure out how we can do a Creole version. So it's more accessible. So that's one way. And then I'm also, you know, really like the focus of my project is not to like find, you know, like a drug or something from these plants. It's really just to assess risk and benefit. So, you know, people are using this plant, people are going to keep using this plant, but what's the risk? What's the benefit? So as I published the results of how this plant impacts on the vaginal microbiota, also getting those back to the Haitian community, or I guess maybe not the Haitian community, but the Dominican community as well. <laughs> yeah, for those who are using the poppy ones. That's great. Yeah. Very cool. Um, well, do you have any nuggets of wisdom or advice to share with any of our listeners that, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are interested in some cases in, in pursuing ethnobotany, like what advice would you give them as a student if if they'd like to pursue some part of this field? I think just getting involved in research. I think I was, I've been reflecting on this a lot recently because I work with a lot of undergraduates in our lab mm-hmm. and I had so many opportunities as an undergraduate to get research experience. At UGA, I had great mentors. I had you as a mentor for a summer. Like it's a, you know, it's, it's really important to kind of dip your toes in the water and see if you like it and see what you're interested in. Cause you know, I did, I did read some research projects in undergrad that were like way different than what I do now, but I still learned a lot. And I think it's just important to, you know, try new things and also get advice from people. Cause I, I've been, I've been so lucky in my mentors and I've had people to like, you know, guide me along the way. And <laughs> I'm really thankful for that. That's awesome. Cool. Well, I mean, this has been really interesting to catch up with you and see where you're at with your research. And I know you've got some exciting um, publications, I'm sure, that are in progress that will be coming mm-hmm. out soon to report all these findings. And yeah, I think it's exciting. So thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this, you know, with us all this progress um, and perspectives. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great seeing you. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded for you today on Zoom. I want to send a big shout out of thanks to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth um, for putting on a great show for you each and every week. Um, You can find this and all of our other episodes at our website. It's at foodiepharmacology.podbean.com. You can also head over to mysterycontrol.com to find some fun swag. We've got t-shirts and mugs and bags and all kinds of fun things that have foodie pharmacology um, logos on them. So thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and we'll see you next time.